9. The whole of the United States at the end of the Revolution, with the addition of Louisiana in 1803, of Florida in 1819, of Texas in 1845, and of this region in 1848, the United States had enormously increased her territory. The discovery of gold on the same day on which the Treaty of Peace was signed with Mexico February 2, 1848, gold was discovered in California. Captain Sutter, a Swiss pioneer living near the site of the present city of Sacramento at Sutter's Fort, where Fremont stopped on his second expedition was having a water power sawmill built up the river at some distance from his home. One day one of the workmen, while walking along the mill race, discovered some bright yellow particles, the largest of which were about the size of grains of wheat. On testing them, Captain Sutter found that they were gold. He tried to keep the discovery a secret, but it was impossible to prevent the news from spreading. Gold, 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 seemed to ring through the air. From all the neighboring countrymen started in a mad rush for the gold fields. Houses were left half-built, fields half-plowed. To the diggings, was the watchword, from the mountains to the coast, from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Settlements were abandoned, even vessels that came into the harbor of San Francisco were deserted by their crews. Sailors and captains alike being wild in their desire to dig for gold. Within four months of the first discovery 4,000 men were living in the neighborhood of Sacramento. The sudden coming together of so many people made it difficult to get supplies, and they rose in value. Tools of many kinds sold for large prices, pickaxes, crowbars, and spades cost from $10 to $50 apiece. Bowls, trays, dishes, and even warming pans were eagerly sought, because they could be used in washing gold. It was late in the year before people in the East learned of the discovery, for news still traveled slowly, but when it arrived, Men of every class farmers, mechanics, lawyers, doctors, and even ministers started west. The journey might be made in three ways. One was by sailing vessels around Cape Horn. This route took from five to seven months. Another way was to sail from some eastern port to the Isthmus of Panama, and crossing this, to take ship to San Francisco. The third route was overland, from what is now St. Joseph, Missouri, and required three or four months. This could not be taken until spring, and some who were unwilling to await started at once by the water routes. Men were so eager to go that often several joined together to buy an outfit of oxen, mules, wagons, and provisions. They made the journey in covered wagons called prairie schooners, while their goods followed in peddlers' carts. It often happened that out on the plains they missed their way, for there was no traveled road, and a compass was as necessary as if they had been on the ocean, journeying thus by day and camping by night, they suffered many hardships while on the way, disease laid hold of them, 4,000 died from cholera during the first year, and many more for lack of suitable food, in some cases they had to kill and eat their mules, and at times they lived on rattlesnakes, the scattered bones of men and beasts marked the trail, for in the frantic desire to reach the diggings the wayfarers would not always stop to bury their dead, when the gold region was reached, tents, wigwams, bark huts, and brush arbors served as shelter, the men did their own cooking, washing, and mending, and food soared to famine prices, a woman or a child was a rare sight in all that eager throng, for men in their haste had left their families behind, it was a time of great excitement, perhaps you have a grandparent who can tell you something of those stirring days, the gold craze of 49 is a never to be forgotten event in our history, as the search for nuggets and gold dust became less fruitful, many of the men turned homeward, 
some enriched and some alas, having lost all they possessed, some things to think about one, what kind of boy was Houston, what kind of man, what did he do for Texas, two, tell about David Crockett's heroism at the Alamo, three, when reading about Fremont's explorations look up on the map every one of them, what do you think of him, four, who was Kit Carson, and how did he help Fremont, five, Locate on your map every acquisition of territory from the end of the revolution to 1848. 6. Imagine yourself going to California across the plains and mountains in 1849, and give an account of your experiences. Chapter XV3 Great Statesman John C. Calhoun The territory which we obtained from Mexico added much to the vastness of our country, but it led to a bitter dispute between the North and the South over slavery. For the North said, All this territory shall be free. The South said, it must all be open to slavery. The trouble over slavery was no new thing. It had begun to be really serious and dangerous many years before the Mexican War. To understand why, a year or two after the close of this war, there should be such deep and violent feeling over the question of making the territory free or opening it to slavery, we must go back to some earlier events in the history of the Union. In doing so, we shall find it simpler to follow the careers of three great statesmen. John C. Calhoun, Henry Clay, and Daniel Webster, who took each a prominent part in the events. John C. Calhoun, born in South Carolina in 1782, was the youngest but one of a family of five children. His father died when he was only 14, and until he was 18 he remained on the farm, living a quiet, simple out-of-door life, plowing, hunting, riding, and fishing. Then his brother, who had observed John's quickness of mind, persuaded him to get an education. After studying two years and a quarter in an academy, he entered the junior class at Yale College, graduating in 1804. He at once took a course in the law school at Litchfield, Connecticut, and then returned home to complete his studies for the bar. Calhoun's conduct in school was above reproach, and as a man he was always steady and serious-minded. During the early years of his public life he won much praise for his close attention to a work his stately speeches, and his courteous manners, his slender and erect form, his dignified bearing, and his piercing dark eyes made him an impressive figure, while, as a speaker, his powerful voice and winning manner were sure to command attention. In 1808 he entered the South Carolina legislature. This was the beginning of his long public career of more than 40 years. During this time he served his country as a representative in Congress, Secretary of War, Vice President of the United States. Secretary of State, and United States Senator. In all these many years he was a prominent leader, especially in those events which concerned the slave-holding Southern planter. This we shall see later, after we have made the acquaintance of the second of the powerful trio of great statesmen, Henry Clay. Henry Clay Henry Clay was born near Richmond, Virginia, in 1777, in a low, level region called, the Slashes. He was one of seven children. His father was a Baptist clergyman, a fine voice and pleasing manner of speaking. He died when little Henry was four years old, leaving but a small sum for his family to live upon. Henry went, like the other boys of the Slashes, to a tiny log school without windows or floor. The schoolmaster, who knew very little himself, taught the boys to read, write, and cipher, but that was all. Outside of school hours Henry shared in the farm work. He helped with the plowing and often rode the family pony to the mill, using a rope for a bridle and a bag of corn, wheat, meal, or flour for a saddle. 
For this reason he has been called, the mill boy of the slashes. When 14 years old he was given a place as clerk in a Richmond drugstore. But he was not to stay there long. For about this time his mother married again. And his stepfather became interested in him. Realizing that Henry was a boy of unusual ability. He secured for him a place as copying clerk in the office of the Court of Chancery at Richmond. Henry was 15 years old. Tall. Thin. And homely. When he entered this office. The other clerks were inclined to jeer at his awkwardness and his plain, homemade, ill-fitting clothes, but Henry's sharp retorts quickly silenced them, and they soon grew to a respect and like him. He was an earnest student. He stayed indoors and read in the evenings, while the other young fellows were idling about the town. He was eager to do something in the world. His opportunity soon came in the ordinary course of his daily work. His fine handwriting attracted the notice of the Chancellor, a very able lawyer. This man was wise and kindly and had a deep influence on his young friend. Clay joined the Richmond Debating Society and soon became the star speaker. He improved his speaking by studying daily some passage in a book of history or science, and then going out into a quiet place and declaiming what he had learned. The Chancellor knew about this, and it pleased him. He advised Henry Clay to study law, and within a year after his studies began, when he was only 21 years old, he was admitted to the bar. To begin his law practice, he went to a Lexington, Kentucky, which was then a small place of not more than 50 houses, but Clay very soon built up a good practice. Although he had arrived with scarcely a penny, within a year and a half he had been so successful that he was able to marry the daughter of a leading family. He soon owned a beautiful estate near Lexington, which he called Ashland, and with its several slaves, he became a great favorite among the people of the state. Largely because he was absolutely truthful and honest in all his dealings. He was also talent, good-natured, and friendly to all. It is said that no man has ever had such power to influence a Kentucky jury as Clay. Twice he was sent to the United States Senate to fill seats left vacant by resignation. And here his power as a speaker was so marked that when it was known that he would address the Senate the galleries were always full. Such was the beginning of his life as a statesman. It lasted some forty years and during this long period he was a prominent leader in the great events having to do with the country's future. He filled various national offices. He was Speaker of the House of Representatives for many years, was four years Secretary of State, and during much more than half of the time between 1831 and 1852 he was in the United States Senate. Three times he was a candidate for president, but each time he failed of election. He would not swerve by a hair's breadth from what he considered his duty. Even for party ends, I would rather be right than be president, he said, and men knew that he was sincere, living in a southern state. He would naturally have the interests of the South at heart, but he did not always take her part, while Calhoun was apt to see but one side of a question. Clay was inclined to see something of both sides and to present his views in such a way as to bring about a settlement. Therefore he was called, the Great Peacemaker. His most important work as a peacemaker had to do with the Missouri Compromise 1820, the Compromise Tariff 1833, and the Compromise of 1850 all of which we look into a little farther on, after we come to know something about the last and perhaps the greatest of our three statesmen, Daniel Webster, for all three were interested in the same great movement. Daniel Webster Daniel Webster was born among the hills of New Hampshire, in 1782, the son of a poor farmer and the ninth of ten children, as he was a frail child, not able to work much on the farm, 
his parents permitted him to spend much of his time fishing, hunting, and roaming at will over the hills. Thus he came into close touch with nature and absorbed a kind of knowledge which was very full to him in later years. He was always learning things, sometimes in most unusual ways, as is shown by an incident which took place when he was only eight years old. Having seen in a store near his home a small cotton handkerchief with the Constitution of the United States printed upon it, he gathered up his small earnings to the amount of 25 cents and eagerly secured the treasure. From this unusual copy he learned the Constitution, word for word, so that he could repeat it from beginning to end. Of course, this was a most remarkable thing for an eight-year-old boy to do, but the boy was himself remarkable. He spent much of his time poring over books. They were few in number but of good quality, and he read them over and over again until they became a part of himself. It gave him keen pleasure to memorize fine poems and also noble selections from the Bible, for he learned easily and remembered well what he learned. In this way he stored his mind with the highest kind of truth. When he was fourteen his father sent him to Phillips Exeter Academy. The boys he met there were mostly from homes of wealth and culture. Some of them were rude and laughed at Daniel's plain dress and country manners. Of course, the poor boy, whose health was not robust and who was by nature shy and independent, found such treatment hard to bear, but he studied well and soon commanded respect because of his good work. After leaving this school he studied for six months under a private tutor, and at the age of fifteen he was prepared to enter Dartmouth College. Although he proved himself to be a youth of unusual mental power, he did not take high rank in scholarship, but he continued to read widely and thoughtfully and stored up much valuable knowledge, which later he used with clearness and force in conversation and debate. After being graduated from college Daniel taught for a year and earned money enough to help pay his brother's college expenses. The following year he studied law and in due time was admitted to the bar. As a lawyer he was very successful, his income sometimes amounting to $20,000 in a single year. In those days that was a very large sum, but he could not manage his money affairs well and, no matter how large his income, he was always in debt. This unfortunate state of affairs was owing to a reckless extravagance, which he displayed in many ways. Indeed, Webster was a man of such large ideas that of necessity he did all things on a large scale. It was vastness that appealed to him, and this ruling force in his nature explains his eagerness to keep the Union whole and supreme over the states. This we shall soon clearly see. Slavery and the tariff having taken this glimpse of our three heroes, let us see how the great events of their time were largely molded by their influence. All of these events, as we are soon to learn, had a direct bearing on slavery, and that was the great question of the day. Up to the revolution there was slavery in all the thirteen colonies. Some of them wished to get rid of it, but England, the mother country, would not allow them to do so, because she profited by the trade in slaves. After the revolution, however, when the states were free to do as they pleased about slavery, some put an end to it on their own soil, and in time Pennsylvania and the states to the north and east of it became free states. Many people then believed that slavery would by degrees die out of the land, and perhaps this would have happened if the growing of cotton had not been made profitable by Eli Whitney's invention of the cotton gin. After that invention came into use, instead of slavery's dying out, it took a much stronger hold upon the planters of the South than it had ever done before. This fact became very evident when Missouri applied for admission into the Union. The South, of course, wished it to come into the Union as a slave state. The North, fearing the extension of slavery into the Louisiana Purchase, 
was equally set upon its coming in as a free state. The struggle over the question was a long and bitter one, but finally both the North and the South agreed to give up a part of what they wanted, that island they agreed upon a compromise. It was this, Missouri was to enter the Union as a slave state, but slavery was not to be allowed in any part of the Louisiana Purchase which lay north or west of Missouri. This was called the Missouri Compromise 1820. It was brought about largely through the eloquence and power of Henry Clay, and because of his part in it he was called the Great Peacemaker. But Calhoun was one of the men who did not think the Missouri Compromise was a good thing for the country. He therefore strongly opposed it. The next clash between the free states and the slave states was caused by the question of the tariff, or tax upon goods brought from foreign countries. Not long after the Missouri Compromise was agreed upon, Northern manufacturers were urging Congress to pass a high-tariff law. They said that, inasmuch as factory labor in England was so much cheaper than in this country, goods made in England could be sold for less money here than our own factory-made goods, unless a law was passed requiring a tax, or duty, to be paid upon the goods brought over. Such a tax was called a protective tariff. Calhoun, who voiced the feeling of the southern planters, said, This high-tariff is unfair, for, while it protects the northern man, it makes us of the south poorer, because we have to pay so high for the things we do not make. You understand, there were no factories in the south, for the people were mostly planters. With the cheap slave labor, a southern man could make more money by raising rice, cotton, sugar, or tobacco than he could by manufacturing. Also, it was thought that the soil and climate of the south made that section better fitted for agriculture than for anything else. So the South should be allowed, said Calhoun, to buy the manufactured goods such as cheap clothing for her slaves, and household tools and farming implements where she can buy them at the lowest prices. But in spite of this bitter opposition in the South, Congress passed the High Tariff Law in 1828, and another in 1832. The people of South Carolina were indignant. So, under the guidance of Calhoun, some of the leading men there met in convention and declared, we here and now nullify the tariff laws. By these words they meant that the laws should not be carried out in South Carolina. Then they added, if the United States government tries to enforce these laws on our soil, South Carolina will go out of the Union and form a separate nation. Andrew Jackson was at that time President of the United States. Although he himself did not favor a high tariff, he was firm in his purpose that whatever law Congress might pass should be enforced in every state in the Union. When the news came to him of what South Carolina had done, he was quietly smoking his corncob pipe. In a flash of anger he declared, The Union, it must and shall be preserved. Send for General Scott. General Scott was commander of the United States Army, and Old Hickory, as President Jackson was proudly called by many of his admirers, was ready to use the Army and the Navy, if necessary, to force any state to obey the law. In this bitter controversy Daniel Webster, then Senator from Massachusetts, had taken a bold stand for the Union. He said, Congress passed the tariff law for the whole country. If the Supreme Court decides that Congress has the power, according to the Constitution, to pass such a law, that settles the matter. South Carolina and every other state must submit to this and every other law which Congress sees fit to make. This shows clearly that Daniel Webster's belief was that the Union stood first and the state second. His deep love for the Union breathes all through his masterly speeches, the most famous of which is his reply to Hayne. Hayne, a senator from South Carolina, was on the side of the South and set forth its views in a public debate. 
he had declared that the state was first and the union second, and so powerful seemed his arguments that many doubted whether even Daniel Webster could answer them, but he did answer them, in a remarkable speech of four hours he held his listeners spellbound, while he argued, with wonderful eloquence and power, that the union was supreme over the states, again the great peacemaker, Henry Clay, brought forward a plan of settling the trouble between the two sections, by this compromise the duties were to be gradually lowered, this plan was adopted by Congress 1833, and again there was peace for a time, the compromise of 1850 the next dangerous outbreak between the North and the South came at the end of the Mexican War, then arose the burning question, shall the territory we have acquired from Mexico be free or open to slavery, of course, the North wanted it to be free, the South wanted it to be open to slavery, Henry Clay tried again, as he had tried twice before in 1820 and in 1833 to pour oil upon the troubled waters, although he was now an old man of 72 and in poor health, he spoke 70 times in his powerful, persuasive way, to bring about the compromise of 1850, which he hoped would establish harmony between the North and the South and save the Union. On one occasion when he was to speak he had to enter the Capitol leaning upon the arm of a friend, because he was too weak to climb the steps alone. After entering the Senate chamber that day, the great speech he made was so long that his friends, fearing fatal results, urged him to stop, but he refused. Later he said that he did not dare to stop for fear he should never be able to begin again. Calhoun was no less ready to do all he could. Early in March, 1850, the white-haired man, now in his 68th year and, like Clay, struggling with illness, went to the Senate chamber, swathed in flannels, to make his last appeal in behalf of the slaveholders. The powerful speech he made, which was intended as a warning to the North, expressed the deep and sincere conviction of the aged statesman that the breakup of the Union was at hand. He made a strong plea that the agitation against slavery should stop, and that the South, which, he said, was the weaker section, should be treated fairly by her stronger antagonist, the North, having made this last supreme effort in defense of the section which he loved as he loved his own life. The pro-slavery veteran, supported by two of his friends, passed out of the Senate chamber, but in spite of Calhoun's opposition, the Compromise of 1850 passed let California come in as a free state, it said, this pleased the North, let the people in all the rest of the territory which we got from Mexico decide for themselves whether they shall have slavery or freedom, this pleased the South, it also adopted the Fugitive Slave Law, which said, when slaves run away from the South into the Northern states, they shall be returned to their masters, and when Northern people are called upon to help to capture them, they shall do so. A month after his speech on this compromise Calhoun died, the last twenty years of his life had been largely devoted to trying to secure what he regarded as the rights of the slaveholders and of the whole South. He was honest in his views. He was also sincere in his convictions that the South was not receiving fair treatment from the North. Henry Clay also died in 1852. Some of the qualities that gave him his rare power over men were his magical voice which was so deep and melodious that many people of his time said it was the finest musical instrument they had ever heard, his cheerful nature, which made him keenly enjoy life and delight to see others enjoy it, and above all else his never-swerving sincerity and honesty, which commanded the respect and confidence of all who knew him. Men believed that Henry Clay was a true man. His popularity grew in strength as he grew in years. His many followers proudly called him, Galant Harry of the West. 
Webster's power as an orator was still more remarkable. His voice was wonderful, his style was forceful, and his language was simple and direct. But after all, it was his striking personal appearance which made the deepest impression upon the men and women who heard him speak. It is told that one day when he was walking through a street of Liverpool, a navvy said of him, that must be a king. On another occasion Sidney Smith exclaimed, Good heavens, he is a small cathedral by himself. He was nearly six feet tall. He had a massive head, a broad, deep brow, and great, cold black eyes, which once seen could never be forgotten. He, too, was faithful in his devotion to his country. To the day of his death he showed his deep affection for the flag, the emblem of that union which had inspired his noblest efforts. During the last two weeks of his life he was troubled much with sleeplessness, while through his open window he gazed at the starlit sky. His eyes would sometimes fall upon a small boat belonging to him, which floated near the shore not far away. By his direction a ship lantern had been so placed that its light would fall upon the stars and stripes flying there. At six in the evening the flag was raised and was kept flying until six in the morning up to the day of Webster's death. He died in September, 1852. Only a few weeks after his great compeer, Henry Clay, his was a master spirit, and the sorrow of his passing was well expressed by the stranger who said, when he looked at the face of the dead, Daniel Webster, the world without you will be lonesome. Some things to think about one, what can you tell about the early life of John C. Calhoun, of Henry Clay, of Daniel Webster, Two. why was Clay called, the great peacemaker, three. Why were the people of South Carolina opposed to the high tariff laws of 1828 and 1832? 4. What was Webster's idea of the Union, and in what way did it differ from Haynes? 5. What was the Missouri Compromise? What was the Compromise of 1850? 6. What do you admire about each of the three great statesmen? 7. Are you making frequent use of your maps? Chapter XVI The Civil War Abraham Lincoln It was thought by many that the Compromise of 1850 would put an end to the bitter and violent feeling over the spread of slavery, but it did not, for in the North the opposition to its extension into new states became so powerful that in five years there had grown up a great political party the Republican Party whose main purpose was to oppose the spread of slavery. One of its ablest and most inspiring leaders was Abraham Lincoln. He was born in a rough cabin in Kentucky. February 12th. 1809, when he was seven years old, the family moved to Indiana, and settled about 18 miles north of the Ohio River. The journey to their new home was very tedious and lonely, for in some places they had to cut a roadway through the forest. It took them three days to travel the last 18 miles. Having arrived safely in November, all set vigorously to a work to provide a shelter against the winter. The seven-year-old boy was healthy, rugged, and active and from early morning till late evening he worked with his father, chopping trees and cutting poles and boughs for their camp, the rude shelter in which they were to live until spring. This camp was a mere shed, only 14 feet square and open on one side. It was built of poles lying one upon another and had a thatched roof of boughs and leaves. As there was no chimney, there could be no fire within the enclosure, and it was necessary to keep one burning all the time just in front of the open side. During this first winter in the wild woods of Indiana the little boy must have lived a very busy life. There was much to do in building the cabin which was to take the place of the camp, and in cutting down trees and making a clearing for the corn planting of the coming spring. After spending the winter in the camp, the Lincoln family, in the following spring, moved into the newly built log cabin, 
This had no windows, and no floor except the bare earth. There was an opening on one side, which was used as a doorway, but there was no door, nor was there so much as an animal skin to keep out the rain or the snow or to protect the family from the cold wind. In this rough abode the rude and simple furniture was very much like what we have already seen in the cabins of the Tennessee settlers. For chairs there was the same kind of three-legged stools, made by smoothing the flat side of a split log and putting sticks into auger holes underneath. The tables were as simply made, except that they stood on four legs instead of three. The crude bedsteads in the corners of the cabin were made by sticking poles in between the logs at right angles to the wall. The outside corner where the poles met being supported by a crow's nest stick driven into the ground. Ropes were then stretched from side to side, making a framework upon which shooks and leaves were heaped for bedding, and over all were thrown the skins of wild animals for a covering. Pegs driven into the wall served as a stairway to the loft, where there was another bed of leaves. Here little Abe slept. Abraham Lincoln's schooling was brief not more than a year in all and the schools he attended were like those we became acquainted with in the early settlements of Kentucky and Tennessee. During his last school days he had to go daily a distance of four and one-half miles from his home, with probably no roadway except the deer path through the forest. His midday lunch was a corn dodger, which he carried in his pocket. In spite of this meager schooling however, the boy, by his self-reliance, resolute purpose, and good reading habits, acquired the very best sort of training for his future life. He had no books at his home, and, of course, there were but few to be had in that wild country from other homes, but among those he read over and over again, while a boy, were the Bible, Aesop's Fables, Robinson Crusoe, Pilgrim's Progress, A History of the United States, and Weems's Life of Washington, all books of the right kind, his stepmother said of him, he read everything he could lay his hands on, and when he came across a passage that struck him, he would write it down on boards, if he had no paper, and keep it before him until he could get paper, then he would copy it, look at it, commit it to memory, and repeat it, when night came he would find a seat in the corner by the fireside, or stretch out at length on the floor in front of it, and by the firelight write, or work sums in arithmetic, on a wooden shovel, using a charred stick for a pencil, after covering the shovel, he would shave it off and use the surface over again. The way in which he came to own a life of Washington is interesting. Having borrowed the book, he took it to bed with him in the loft and read it till his candle gave out. Then, before going to sleep, he tucked the book into a 